It is so fun being with you all. The last Sunday before we move into Christmas. This is crazy. Uh, Brooke opened up our Christmas series looking at Mary and Elizabeth and their like reaction to this news. And, and I have the privilege of being able to, cl- uh, not close, Todd's closing it, bringing us home on Christmas Eve, but the last Sunday. Um, so I wanted to start off by letting everyone know I've been studying Brazilian jiu-jitsu since May. So I just want you to know that. My whole body is officially a weapon at this point. If anyone is in need of protective services, uh, if there's an altercation, I'm a two-stripe white belt. So, no, so I, love, I love Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but I'm terrible at Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'm really bad. I'm very not knowledgeable at Brazilian combative jiu-jitsu. I love it, but I'm clunky. I forget moves. I forget the names of moves. When I'm in a grappling situation, I have to like think, now put your left arm here, tuck your elbow, clench your teeth. Like I, I have to constantly tell myself, like a robot, I'm very robotic. One of my favorite things to do, uh, however, is to get to my training about 20 minutes early or 15 minutes early and watch the master's cycle uh, people grapple. These are like the, the belts much higher than mine. I love watching the brown and black belt jujitsu practitioners train together. How they artfully and it seems like just instinctually weave together these moves from what look like impossible situations or deeply uncomfortable situations and just to watch the art and science of these highly skilled, highly uh, trained and really artful and brilliant practitioners of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So if you, like me, have ever felt sort of wonky about your faith, you feel sort of clunky, robotic, weak, I feel oftentimes like I am like a a two-stripe white belt in my faith uh, some weeks. What I love is the fact that we get to open up this text and sit and just watch some like black belts in faithing. We get to watch these incredible heroes, these paragons of faith, as they respond to situations, challenges. And so as we look at the Christmas story, which I want to say, like, that was enough right there. I should probably just shut up and and we can go home. Some of you are like, oh, please be serious. (laughs) But what I'd like to do this morning is read through a couple snippets from Matthew of this Christmas story, and I would love to do it through the the eyes and heart of Joseph. Joseph, who is a figure that we only see in the first two chapters of of Matthew and the first couple chapters of Luke, and he disappears, he's gone, not mentioned again after that, but a figure who his faith and the circumstances, the faith-demanding circumstances that he finds himself in, I think there is so much to learn from and reflect with. So that's what we're going to do this morning as we think about faith. And faith so much more than intellectual assent. It's so much more. It's not less than ideas and notions and truths. But it's so much more than just saying, here's what I believe about reality, about God, about this, that, and the other. Faith is so much more than a tradition that you're raised in. A thing, it can involve that, but it's so much more than that. Faith is so much more than even moments of inspiration, 
which are beautiful when you have those moments, maybe at a camp or at like a church service or watching a sunset or just out in the middle of the ocean and you're sitting there going, wow. And you respond in those moments. Those are beautiful. But faith, faith is a lifestyle. It's this ongoing posture of the heart, rhythm of life, moments, minutes, hours, and months. And we get to watch today this black belt in faithing Joseph as he uh, walks through some incredible circumstances. And so today, if you'd like to join me uh, with reading, you can open up to Matthew. I'll be starting in the first chapter, verse 18. If you want to just sit back and hear it, as I always say, that is the way that um, the earliest Christians encountered the text. Most of them was through hearing, not reading. So you're in good company if you want to just read it, uh, listen to it. If you want to zone out completely, you also have my permission to do that. So let's begin, Matthew, um, and let's, let's all the while think through this figure, this figure of Joseph and the faith-demanding moments that he's going to walk through. So, so as we read... We're going to read, I want to stop a few times and think about what is going on, what is likely going on in his heart and mind. What are the, what's the nature of the circumstances he's facing and what is his response? So those are kind of the pieces that we're just going to explore. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Take a breath. We know the story. Now enter Joseph's worldview for a second. At this point, he has zero bits of information other than the fact that this woman I'm betrothed to marry, I know I've not been with her, and she has a child on the way. This is deeply discouraging. This is not the season of um, romance and kissing under mistletoe. This is really, really heartbreaking. And you can imagine the anguish he wrestles through. You can imagine the dark places he likely went in his mind as he's feeling crushed with this beautiful bride-to-be, knowing now not only would this not happen, but he's been betrayed by someone he never saw that coming from. How could she be so, so deceitful and fake it so well? Here's his response. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, or being a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. This is our first glimpse into the character of this Joseph. We know almost nothing about him other than his lineage, which we just got done reading about. And we know that he has a heart for justice. He's a protector of people. And in a moment and in a time when he could easily expose her to great public shame, he could end her Socially and, and maybe even otherwise, depending on the reactions of the community, he decides, no, I'm going to protect her. And he says, we're just going to quietly deal with this. So this is the first glimpse into the moment. This is not warm fluffies. This is really painful, really hard, sobering material that he is facing. And he says, no, I'm going to protect Mary. 
After he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And you're thinking, like, if you're Joseph, could you maybe have had this dream like a week before she came out with a pregnancy test and was like, hey, guess what, Joseph? Like, how about a week before you let me know what's happening, God? No, this is how it happened. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He's going, what? She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus, Yeshua. God saves because he will save his people from their ultimate shackles, from that which is ultimately crushing humanity, their sins. He will save them out of the corruption, rebellion, greed, systems of oppression, addictions that are just crushing humanity. He'll save them out of that. This all took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So as we think about this story through the lenses of Joseph, so the whole deep, scandalous heartbreak of his wife being pregnant without him participating in that, that's off the table, and that's a nice relief, right? And now you know, not only this, but my wife, she has this child, and God is doing something powerful, mysterious, and um, culminating in salvation history, and he's using Mary. She's going to be the mother of this child. Reflect for a second, as a father, there's going to be, with all the joy and excitement of this moment, there's going to be some challenges. First of all, he's thinking, like, what's my, I, I would imagine, What's my role in all this? What, like, am I just this kind of third wheel? There's God and Mary, and they're going to have this amazing salvation history moment, and it's going to be great. I'm going to be there, like, can I hold your purse? Like, what do you need, Mary? What's my role in this? Am I just the third wheel? And what about all the family honor he may have hoped to gain as, as any Mediterranean male would want? And his bloodline's really important. He's from Bethlehem. He's the descendant of David. All these great things. Now, none of those technically are going to apply. He'll be able to watch Jesus grow up, do these incredible things, and all the while you can imagine the song playing in the head, which is, technically, you have nothing to do with this. This isn't yours, right? So there's that interesting moment where we want to consider what he's facing, the circumstances he's facing. Then there's, like, personal fatherly questions. I just can say, like, as a father, that question that's going to linger in the air Will I really attach to this child? I mean, will I? This isn't my flesh and blood. And if our culture seems to put, I think, an undue emphasis on that, his culture put a massive emphasis on that. This is your child. That's going to be very important. So, in all the moments, that challenge of will I truly bond with this child? Will I truly be connected to this child? Not to mention the difficulty of sorting out for Joseph the theology of all of this. If he's a faithful son of the house of Israel, he's one of the people of God. You can read a bunch of prophecies. I'm spitting while I talk. It's like a snow sort of Disneyland effect here. No one's in that row, so I'll angle that way when I'm feeling spittle coming on. Um, You can imagine 
or you can read through the Hebrew Bible and see all these passages that point towards Jesus the Messiah. But if you're going to be really honest and really fair about it, they are difficult to spot until after you've seen Jesus' life. And you're able to go, oh my gosh, I can now go back and see it. It's like seeing a great movie with a twist ending. And as soon as you see that twist ending, you're like, I have to rewatch the movie now with this in mind. You rewatch the movie and you go, oh, I totally see it. That makes so much sense. Oh, I missed that. But that totally makes sense. This is a lot of the way that messianic prophecy works in the Hebrew Bible. It makes sense when you see Jesus and you can go back and go, oh, I see it now. So if you're Joseph, he doesn't know, as we'll get to later probably, he doesn't know the the uh, crucified, resurrected Jesus. He hasn't seen all these things. He's sitting here going, now how does this work theologically? How am I going to explain this to the, arche- the, the, the ruler of my synagogue and how all this is supposed to, am I going to have to keep this close to the chest the whole time? So these are some challenges that he's facing early on in the story. And yet, what do we see him doing? We see Joseph beautifully faithing. Beautifully faithing. I want to use that verbal form. In in English, we actually don't have, unfortunately, a verb form for to faith. But that's exactly the Greek term, to faith. Faithing. Watch this man, faith. He just does what the angel commands him. He says, all right, God, if this is how it's going to be, let's go. I'm walking with you in this. So with all of the complexity of the situation, at least he's at home in his hometown, his, the land of his ancestors, Bethlehem. And there's something that feels good. How many of y'all college students came in from somewhere else? You're, you're here with us today. Any college students? All right. Does it feel good coming home a little bit? Feeling good? Yeah? Some of you are like, I can't say no. My parents are right here. So, so you're home, and, and I don't know about you, I feel this way about the South Bay, right? My dad was from Playa del Rey growing up, and I, this, this, I've been here, like, I, I love this place. I feel at home. I feel safe here. I feel comfortable here. So at least he'll go through all of these challenges with family, kith and kin, right, and, and navigate the situation at home. Then the episode of the Magi, which Todd covered last week, takes place, and right after that, Matthew chapter 2, There's another twist. Verse 13, when the Magi had gone away, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, said, get up, take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. I don't know about you, uh, those of you with, with families, or maybe you're an uncle or an aunt or a cousin, and you like to look back on Christmas pictures from like years ago, or your iPhone pops them up and says, here's a memory from 2013, and you look through it, and you're like crying at the end of it, but I love doing that. There's something so special. I look at my, my little niece, Charlie, over here, and Kirby and Jake are having their first Christmas with Charlie, and just the, that, remember that moment when it's just the one, you know, it's just that one little baby, and you're having these, these, you'll never be able to go back to family moments. And now, Joseph is going to be spending those moments as a refugee from political violence in the land of Egypt. And if you know anything about biblical history, which Joseph certainly would have, Egypt is not a place of milk flowing with milk and honey. 
Egypt is the land not of his ancestors. Egypt is the land in which his ancestors were treated as human property for 400 years. That's where he will be spending an unknown amount of his life in the formative moments with this little baby as this little, or this child as it grows up in toddler and beyond. He's not given a time limit. We're going to do a six-month internship in Egypt. Then we'll bring you back as a VP in charge of marketing. And you're like, okay, at least I'm coming back. Once I get my bachelor's degree, I can move back. Rather, he's just there, a refugee from political violence. And that's where the Christmas cards are going to be coming from. There probably weren't Christmas cards, and there was nothing called Christmas at that time. Well, yeah, there wasn't. But what does he do? He beautifully gets to faithing. He faiths so beautifully. As Matt pointed out when he gave a great sermon looking at Herod and the reasons why Herod would want Jesus gone, he made a really good observation, which is Joseph flees at night. If I'm given news that I have to go somewhere I don't want to go, I'm like, oh, well, maybe tomorrow morning, get a little brunch get some Starbucks, and we'll head on out. And here it says he leaves at night, which, as Matt pointed out, was a dangerous thing to do. You don't go out at night. You just don't. The only people around in the ancient world at nighttime, especially in urban contexts, the only people out at night were people you did not want to bump into or people that did not have the means to get inside. And yet he does this incredible act of faithing, and he says, all right, it's time to go. We're out of here. Let's go. Beautiful faithing. And finally, looks like the sun is rising a little bit. There's a bright spot of hope in the story. Maybe things will get to some semblance of normal for Joseph as a father, as a man, as a member of the community. It says in Matthew 2.19, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. I'm back. We're back. We're going back to Israel. And as we'll find out in a second, indeed, he's thinking Bethlehem in Judea. This is probably the spot that we could go. We could finally get back to the land of my ancestors, Judea. I mean, it's, that's near Jerusalem. That's where the pilgrimage festivals happen. That's where God seems to do these incredible acts and these incredible um, works. We're going to be living at the epicenter of where it's happening. Okay. We ate our vegetables, we went down to Egypt, and now it's time for dessert. We're going to live out the rest of our days in this great place and see what happens and what unfolds. Okay, so here's what it says. Take the child, go to the land of Israel, for the ones trying to take the child's life are dead. He got up, he took the child and his mother, went to the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus, that's one of the sons of Herod, Incompetent governor, by the way, but that's another story. When Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he's afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a town called, wait for it, Nazareth. Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Uh, I want you all to think about your drive up here today, or maybe you were living up here, kind of drove here. Think about the trees, the beauty. Think about knowing the ocean's right there. Think about maybe the events you'll be enjoying down in the village later on, taking a stroll on Manhattan Pier, 
the beauty of the place we live. Think about it for a second. And now think Barstow. Go. <laughs> I'm sorry if you're from Barstow, but you know what I'm talking about if you are. Like, think Barstow. Okay, this is what we're talking about with Nazareth. In John chapter 1, when one of the disciples of Jesus, this guy Nathaniel, first hears about Jesus from his brother, he says, we found the one the law spoke of. We found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel's response is, Nazareth? Nazareth. And he's like, what good thing comes from Nazareth? Right? This is like, like, forget Barstow, this is like Baker, California, right? You're like, what is this place? And he's going to be going there. And by the way, this is your life, Joseph. You're going to live there. This will define the rhythms, where you wake up, where you go to sleep. The very few people you'll know, you're going to be in Nazareth. And yet, what does he do? He beautifully gets to faithing. He just, he just says, let's go. We're doing this. The last point as we reflect on um, his perspective or his in, um, experience is to sort of make all the complex matters a little bit worse. It's most likely that Joseph dies long before he gets any explanations of the long game. He most likely dies before he gets any of the payoff, before he gets to read the script start to finish. He does not have the opportunity to witness water turned into wine, to see his son touching the untouchable, watching them heal and be brought back into a community that had pushed them out. He never gets to watch a little girl who had been sick almost dead, dancing and playing jump rope again. He does not get to see his son doing the hardest thing, dying, knowing this death is going to mean freedom for all people. And I'm so proud of my son. I'm so proud of him. He doesn't get to see Jesus resurrected, looking in his eyes saying, life wins. Death, thou shalt die. Life wins. He doesn't get to read through the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, and, and in light of Jesus go, oh my gosh, I see it now. It makes so much sense. He gets none of that. He gets a few specific moves, which is his life, and yet, and this is what blows my mind about this character, the mural painted by Joseph's life sings this song. I don't know the plan but I know the one that's in charge of all of it. I don't know the details, but I know the God who is in charge of every single one of them. I have entrusted myself to a person, and I'm okay with that. No, I'm good with that. He can sing along with the psalmist. I love this in Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help, oh, it comes from you, Lord, the maker of the heavens and earth. The repeating melody of his heart could sing that same song that the Apostle Paul, in his last letter that we have to, to one of his mentees, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, he has this great line. He's saying, most likely on his way to 
uh, to death, he's saying, Timothy, I know in whom I have faith. I know in whom I have trusted that he's able to guard what I've entrusted him with. Paul's able to say, I know the one I've given my life to, and I don't know all the details. I'm not sure of how it's all going to play out, but I am so sure of this person that I've trusted, the God in whom I've trusted. Joseph was a black belt in faith because he knew and trusted his father. He knew and trusted his father. Uh, as a dad, and now a dad of four kids, right, I'm like, I'm becoming something of an expert on like trying to get kids to trust you, like coaxing kids to trust you, and all the different kinds of varieties of trusting or having faith in me that they can have. Uh, one of my favorites is the close your eyes and open your mouth trust game, right? Do y'all know that one, right? Close your eyes and open your mouth. And if you're peeking, nope, nope, close them, close them. What does that lead to? that leads to a delicious treat. Something delicious is coming. I'm not going to spray sriracha in my son's mouth, right, as he closes his eyes and opens his mouth. He's going to get something chocolatey or a spray of whipped cream or something delicious. Now, Brixton knows. Like, if I say, Brixton, close your eyes, open your mouth. He's, like, running. He's ready, man. Just give it to me, Dad. One of my favorite trust me's is trust me and jump right when you're in the pool. Just trust me and jump. Daddy will catch you. Trust me. Trust me. Daddy won't let you drown. That's not a little negative, but trust me. <laughs> One of the best things, right, um, dads and moms out there and, and uncles and, and cousins who, who have little ones in their life is that snapshot of their eyes as they're coming down, right, just looking at you like, and you're just like, they trust me. Trust me. What does that lead to? What does that trust develop lead to for the child? It leads to fun. It leads to the adventure of life. It leads to a thrill of saying, I'm here, and I'm in the water, I'm in the pool, and I'm having fun. It's a little dangerous, but I know it's safe because I know my dad's going to catch me, right? This trust me moment. The trust me, this is a good one. Trust me, keep pedaling, right? Trust me, you got to keep pedaling. Keep pedaling. Keep pedaling. I'd like to say you won't crash, but that's not a good promise, right? Just keep pedaling, and you probably won't crash. And that leads to a, a new skill, a new life skill. But then there are those other trust me moments, right, that are a little bit more significant, a little more. The stakes are a bit higher in these moments. I remember uh, a few years ago, I think Michelle was five or six years old, and I, 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 was, I was out there with her on the soft top board, you know, surfing, getting her, pushing, her, pushing her into waves. And it was a day when there was a south swell building in, but it hadn't come. To, it was just coming in that day, and, and, um, and I said, you know what, let's go a little further out, and we'll catch some, some waves as they're breaking so we're not just catching whitewash. And we get a little further out, we're out there for about 20 minutes, and all of a sudden I look on the horizon, and there's like, it's a solid six-foot wave, which is like, that's like a well-overhead wave. That's a wave that would make me go, whoo, that's a little, that's, I better get out there if I was alone. And I'm with my little five-year-old daughter, I'm thinking, oh, this is it, she's, she, you know, this is, she's not going to like surfing, she's not going to like daddy, this is over. Right? But I look to her in the moment, I, I grab her face, I look at me, look at me, sweetie, I go, I love you, you have to trust me. We're gonna, I'm going to hold you, we're going to go down to the bottom, we're going to be down there for a couple seconds, and then we're going to come up, okay? You have to trust me, it's the only way through, right? It's one of those trust daddy, it's the only way through moments. You can't stop trusting me when we get down and it gets a little crazy. If you stop trusting me there, it's going to be terrible for you, right? You just, I didn't tell her that, I just said, just trust daddy. <laughs> I said, trust daddy, 
I'll be with you the whole time. You're safe. And we went down, and the wave broke. We made it under and up, and I looked at her and I go, see, no big deal, as I'm thinking. I better get in right now if I ever want her to surf again. <laughs> the moral of the story is trust daddy if there's a big wave coming. Don't trust daddy to put you out in safe surfing conditions. <laughs> that, that moment um, of trust, where it's the only way through, you have to trust. We're going through this together. I won't leave you. I can't snap my fingers, or I'm not going to snap my fingers and get you out of this, but I'll be with you through this. It's powerful. It's the kind of trust we see in Joseph's life. Uh, I love the opportunity Christmas gives us to reflect on the, Jasper's like loving the sermon, I can tell. He's like all into it. So beautiful. I love the opportunity to uh, think back on the last year. It's like a great time to go, what happened in 2018? To reflect and to sort of uh, maybe mourn. Some of you are, are having a, a Christmas reflection where you've lost loved ones this year. And, you, and you're, you're, it's a little deeper for you. It's heavier. It's a little more painful. And you're processing. Some of you uh, have the, the light, fluffy, fun Christmas reflection where it's just been a fun year. It's been a really fun year. Right? I feel like I'll talk about it a little bit, but our family's had a fun year. Some of you, it's more nostalgic or sentimental. You're thinking about being a kid again. I remember turning 19, 20, looking at my college crew over here, and you start realizing, like, I'm not a kid anymore. And, like, the distance between me and the kid Christmas is getting further and further, and you're sort of trying to get back to it. How can I get back to that feeling of being a kid? Some years it's more serious, maybe even desperate for some of you, as you come to, as you reflect on your 2018, and you go, this is a desperate year. It's a desperate year for me. Um, and then I also love being able to look forward to, to the new year and say, what might happen? What could be? Or to take a sober estimation of some realities that are coming up. As I reflect this year, and I'll just be personal for the last part of this message, um, as I reflect, this, is, this year, 2018, I don't know that I've ever had a year with a heart so full of gratitude. I've been so busting forth with the warm fuzzies. It's been a miracle year. It's been a miraculous year. It's been a year of love, soaked in love and grace. I mean, if y'all remember, those of you that have been tracking with our story, because we bring you into it, because you're our family, you're our tribe. We're in a caravan together, River. We're, we're moving through this there for each other. But if you remember, in 2017 Christmas, leading up to it, um, that whole year, Brian and I had, we wanted to be certified to be foster parents. We wanted to do foster to adopt. We wanted to, through the foster care system, we had a big heart for this. And we, could, we had everything finished, all our certification done, but we couldn't find a three-bedroom that wouldn't cripple us on our month-to-month -month finances. I'm an assistant professor. I don't make a lot, right? It's like very difficult to find. And we looked 20, 25 places. And we were starting to think, like, how is this going to happen, God? In 2017. In 2018, because a family in this church valued people over profits, we are right now renting a miracle house, a miracle house for a fraction of what they could get for it. And I live in a miracle. I, it's full. That house is full of little feet running around, little tears here and there, of so much laughter, of so much, like, horseplay. It's the coolest place to be. When I'm at work, I'm like, I want to get home back into the chaos. It's so warm and rich and beautiful. 
Last Christmas, as I think back, 2017 and this 2018 Christmas, last Christmas, Bray made two extra little stockings, two extra little stockings without names on them that kind of adorned the ends of our stocking row. This year, those two stockings have two beautiful names, Calvin and Franco. And we are having the Christmas of our lives. And I stand before you and I marvel at the faithfulness of God, who every step of the way, as I look back on where we've rode on the journey, I go, oh, I see the path now. I see where he was leading us. I get it now. And as I think forward to 2019, as I reflect forward and ponder, there are terrifying notions in 2019. There are wonderful things. And isn't this the case of life, right? It's, it's just the reality for all of us, whether it's what's going to happen with my health, my finances, my job, my family, my life. And there are some things in your 2019 that are very specific. You know, in 2019, I'm going to have to address this thing. Or this will be a reality. As big as our hearts have grown in this um, as big as our hearts are for Franco and Calvin, those are my boys. Those are my boys. Those are my little stinkers. I love them. My heart is just full of love for these kids. And sometimes people ask, and it's a great question, how do you do that? Like, do you guard your heart a little bit if they're forced to adopt? I mean, it's still a lot of chances that they're going to go back, that, won't, that they won't be able to keep them. The answer to that question is no, you, you can't put a catalytic converter on your heart and say, I'm going to love them at 75% of what I love my bio kids. I would say it's impossible. You love them. You recklessly, lavishly love them. And yet the terrifying notion is that there's percentage chance that some paternal grandma or auntie or cousin pops up in the 11th hour in the family court, wonky as it often can be, says, I'm sorry. And my heart's out there. And what do I do? Where do I go? I'm terrified of that notion. I'm truly terrified. And yet, the beauty of the story we live in and the footsteps of the faith of Joseph that we get to walk is this. I don't know outcomes. I know percentages. I know likelihoods. I'm encouraged by those. But I know the God in whom I've trusted. And I'm, I'm standing before you not lying, not churching it up because I'm the preacher this morning, but legitimately telling you, I am insanely comforted by just knowing God's going to be with me in whatever happens. And if I have to, if Brent have to grab him and go, God, we're going down, hold us, hold us, Dad, hold us, Daddy, through this, I know he will. And I have no doubt it's so comforting. I know it sounds crazy, but there is nothing else, and I truly believe this with all my heart, there is nothing else, like Brooke said in her sermon, that can bear the weight of our hope. Our hope is too heavy. Our hope is far too heavy. Your hope is too heavy. Nothing else is going to be able to hold it. It's going to crush eventually. Not networks, relationships, strategy, intellect, power, money, connections. None of it's going to hold the weight, ultimately. And this is the crazy existential reality of following Jesus. Is it's not just, it's, it does have huge intellectual components. If, I, if the Christian worldview was something that you had to turn your brain off to jump into, I couldn't do it. 
You can keep your brain firing. You can ask all kinds of questions. But it is a moment where you step out and you go, all right, let's go. I'm faithing now. And we stand this Christmas with a hall of heroes in faith to reflect with. For Joseph, he didn't see the end of the story with his biological eyes, right? But he knew the God that was writing that story, and that was enough for him. And I want that to be enough for me this Christmas. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to move into um, some worship and eventually some communion. And thank you, uh, thank you, community, by the way. I love that we are that caravan of love together. We're in this journey, and it's encouraging. So, Lord, we just turn our hearts to you, the one, the only one that can bear the weight of our hope, our fears. We can control a fraction of things in our life, or we think we can, Lord, but the truth is, the only safe place to be is recklessly abandoned into your arms. And I thank you that you made a way for this to happen. You overcame our own darkness, our own rebellion, our own insistence on trying to make it work without you, Lord. You overcame that on the cross and you offer to us this moment, life, and life abundantly. And so, Lord, I worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.